Saint Maximilian Colby once said, the most deadly poison of our time is indifference. Welcome to the 33rd episode of Saint Dimpness Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because the time to be indifferent to our suffering sisters and brothers is over. A new era of compassion and community is ready to be ushered in. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, I received a DM asking for my take on saints who did extreme penances that harmed them physically. The listener wrote, you recently talked about Saint Gemma on a previous episode, and she's an example of a saint I've struggled to connect with after hearing about some of the penances she inflicted on herself. Though I've never struggled with this, I know several people who've struggled with self-harm, and it feels strange to think that certain saints are venerated in part because of their willingness to undergo penances which nowadays can resemble self-harming practices. I've touched on this a bit in previous episodes so I'll try and get straight to the point. Many of the penitential practices of the saints that we read about are in fact 100% intense and scary, and there's nothing wrong with us if we find them a bit bizarre or off-putting. Smearing acid on one's face to deter suitors, carving the name of Jesus into one's chest as a sign of devotion, whipping oneself with a cord in reparation for one's sins. It's all a bit much, and yes, it's natural for us to look at the epidemic of self-harm in our world today, which we want to rescue people from, and then look at these practices and experience confusion about the whole thing. That being said, I'd like to offer two points. First, that the saints open themselves up to grace in a manner which we struggle to understand. And second, that a proper judgment of these practices requires us to look at the intentions of the actions and the fruits that they bore. We know that God's grace is not given equally to each of us. God gives his grace in different amounts to different people as he sees fit. Of course, we all receive sufficient grace to transform ourselves into what he calls us to be and to live with him forever in heaven. But St. Teresa of Calcutta was obviously given more grace than me, and she most definitely gave herself over to that grace more than I ever will. Because of that, the saints understand the world differently than we do. They become more attuned to God, his will, what's really important, the face of Christ and those around us, and perhaps most intensely, the reality of sin in their lives. And so when we look at the intense penances, we don't quite understand what's going on, but the saints did. Which brings me to my second point on this topic. We need to look at the intention behind the behavior and the fruits that came forth from the behavior. Intention is really powerful here. The saints weren't engaging in this behavior, in these behaviors out of anything other than an intense sorrow for sin and a desire to offer up suffering connected to the suffering of Christ on the cross. And the fruits, as we look at the fruits of these practices, we can see that there's something powerful going on here. With saints like Rose of Lima or Mary Margaret Alacoque or John Paul II, we see that the penances they took on bore fruit in their lives and in the wider world, which helps clue us in on the fact that there's something going on here that we don't quite understand. Now, please remember that all of this is just my opinion, and I'd like to underscore the importance of seeking out help and having a real evaluation if we're stuck in a cycle of self-harm to get an objective opinion on how we're doing. But let's also grow to be comfortable with the saints making us uncomfortable. On to the next topic, I received a question on what to do if you start to have feelings for your therapist and why in the world would this happen? 
Okay, so this is a pretty serious topic, but let's not totally freak out here. When we go into therapy, we typically find ourselves in a situation where we're sitting with someone who genuinely cares about us, someone who listens to us, gives us unconditional positive regard, and is there for us in a way which we don't find all too often in our typical relationships. The place it does happen, though, relationships based on love, marriage, and deep friendships. So when we experience these feelings, it's not outside the norm to start to feel like maybe we're having feelings. Maybe we're in love. Maybe when a big, it's because when we're in love, this is the kind of relationship we have. So take heart. It doesn't mean anything bad about you. <laughs> but what do we do with these feelings? Do we bring it up to our therapist? Well, by now, you know that me as a therapist, I'm not going to answer the questions for you. You have to do what you think is best. If you think it's best to bring it up and process it, go for it. If you feel like you wouldn't be able to bring it up, respect that feeling. But either way, it's probably best to ask for a referral out to start seeking or, or start seeking a referral out because if you feel comfortable bringing it up or not, it's most likely going to impede your progress or at the very least complicate it. Oh, and here's a fun fact for you. While TV and movies seem to make it look like therapists have sex with their clients all the time, it's actually super, super rare, thank God. But those who do it and get caught get the honor not only of losing their licenses forever, but also of getting their names printed in a therapist magazine for all to see, as is right and just. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm here to share a little bit about St. Joan of Arc. Born in France in 1412, the Maid of Orléans claimed to receive visions from St. Michael the Archangel, St. Margaret, St. Catherine of Alexandria, all giving her the mission to support Charles VII and take France back from the English during the Hundred Years' War. She was sent to the Siege of Orléans and gained prominence after the siege was lifted just nine days after she showed up on the scene. This was followed by several other victories that led to Charles VII's consecration as king, which boosted French morale and led the French to be victorious. Victorious. Joan was captured in 1430 after a group of French nobles who were allies with the English sold her out, and she was put on trial by a pro-English bishop, Pierre Cochon. I'm, I'm just ruining all the uh, pronunciations in French, but you're hanging with me because you're awesome. He declared her guilty, which led to her being burned to death at the stake at the age of 19. I bring up Joan today, well, I mean, first, because she's an absolute hero and seriously underrated saint, but also because some historians have attempted to claim that Joan suffered from schizophrenia as a response to her visions and voices. But thankfully, most people looking at the facts have to admit that this simply isn't true. As I mentioned with the intense saint penances earlier on, we can look at the fruits of her experience and see that this was something different, something mystical. She changed the world, and people are still talking about her centuries later. And may she intercede for us today and forever. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer, so here we go. In the face of your enemies, in the face of harassment, ridicule, and doubt, you held firm in your faith. Even in your abandonment, alone and without friends, you held firm in your faith. Even as you faced your own mortality, you held firm in your faith. I pray that I may be as bold in my beliefs as you, St. Joan. I ask that you ride alongside me in my own battles. Help me be mindful that what is worthwhile can be won when I persist. Help me hold firm in my faith. Help me believe in my ability to act well and wisely. Amen. 
And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. We're kicking things off with Danielle. I've grown up with an alcoholic parent and a sibling with borderline personality disorder. I've been trying to get my family to seek therapy for several years, but with little success. My online life coach recently asked me if I'm codependent, and I'm finding that I have some of those traits. I'm struggling to come to terms with being codependent, and I worry I might have to stop trying to find help for my family for fear of being an enabler. I also fear that the boundaries I'll need to set between myself and my family members will create a distance that I don't want. As Catholics, aren't we called to help others and put the needs of others first? How can I balance doing this without being codependent? Thanks for the question, Danielle. And let's start by praying for everyone in a similar situation, wanting to do everything they can to help, but also trying to be mindful of trying to do what's best for the entire family unit. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. This question has come up quite a few times on the podcast, so first off, please know that you are not alone. I'm glad that you see value in trying to get people connected to therapy, but as it sounds like you found, people have to want to engage in therapy for it to happen and for it to work. So eventually, we're left with the realization that we only have control over ourselves, and that's where we've got to start. It's great that you're connected to a life coach online, but I would recommend considering getting involved with therapy yourself, because that in-person connection is something that really can compare to online interactions, and it may be worth looking into your local meetings for Al-Anon and CODA. Al-Anon is for people who are worried about someone with a drinking problem, and CODA is for those wanting to recover from codependency and those who desire healthy and loving relationships. It might be a great place to start. As for your final statement, as Catholics, aren't we called to help others and put the needs of others first? Yes, this is a basic Christian belief that we should love with a selfless and unconditional love for others, starting with our family, but we can't do this, one, at the expense of our own physical and emotional health, and two, with uh, when our help is actually hurting others by enabling them to continue negative behaviors. So here are some questions from Psych Central to ask yourself as you consider if you are being compassionate or codependent. Think about them contemplate them, and then you can decide how best to move forward. What are your intentions? Alleviating another's suffering or self-protection, acceptance, and safety? How do you feel emotionally and physically? Do you value the other person more than yourself? Do you feel like you have a choice? Is the relationship healthy? And lastly, do you feel guilty? Anonymous checks in next. Prior to my ordination, I was sent a full psychological evaluation, sent for a full psychological evaluation, and things didn't go well. It came back with a diagnosis of social anxiety disorder, avoidance personality disorder, and schizoid personality disorder. From my understanding, the latter two were of concern and will make priesthood impossible. As a result, I'm now being tossed out of formation, and it feels like my life has completely imploded on me. Let's, uh, let's all stop what we're doing and pray for Anonymous and everyone trying to navigate their call and vocation with a history of mental health treatment or mental health diagnoses. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. I'm always so crushed to hear stories like this. People turned away from religious life because of a history of taking medication for depression. People sent away from seminary because of a mental health diagnosis. I know there are a lot of things that go into these kinds of decisions, and it's probably not as clearly about mental health as it seems, but I can't help but feel heartbroken whenever I hear these experiences. Let's start with some uh, definitions here. We're going to go through the DSM-5, thanks to PsychCom. Dot com, kind of a weird website. Okay, let's do this. Social anxiety disorder is characterized by excessive fear, anxiety, discomfort, and self-consciousness in social settings. 6.8% of the U.S. population suffers with social anxiety disorder. And one study showed that 85% of people using cognitive behavioral therapy alone with no medication were able to drastically improve or completely recover. Closely linked avoidant personality disorders characterized by three major components, social inhibition, feelings of inadequacy, sensitivity to criticism or rejection. They also must experience, people with this disorder also must experience at least four of the following symptoms, avoidance of activities at work that involve interpersonal contact due to fear of criticism or rejection, unwillingness to interact with others unless certain they will receive a positive response, hesitancy in intimate relationships due to fear of shame, preoccupation with criticism in social situations, feeling inadequate and being inhibited in new social situations, perception of self as inept, unappealing, and inferior, and reluctance to take risks or engage in activities that might result in embarrassment. Like social anxiety disorder, talk therapy is the primary treatment for avoidant personality disorder, and therapy is actually shown to be quite successful. Last on your list and least well understood by the general population is schizoid personality disorder. We're going to go with the Mayo Clinic for help on this one. If you have schizoid personality disorder, it's likely that you prefer being alone and choose to do activities alone. Don't want to enjoy close relationships. Feel little, if any, desire for sexual relationships. Feel like you can't experience pleasure. Have difficulty expressing emotions and reacting appropriately to situations. May seem humorless, indifferent, or emotionally cold to others, may appear to lack motivation and goals, and don't react to praise or critical remarks from others. Schizoid personality disorder uh, usually begins by early adulthood, though some features may be noticeable during childhood. These features may cause you to have trouble functioning well in school, a job, socially, or other areas of life. However, you may do reasonably well in your job if you mostly work alone. And like the other diagnoses, research indicates that with appropriate treatment and a skilled therapist, you can make significant progress and improve your quality of life with schizoid personality disorder. I should say real quick, uh, one thing when you start hearing things about a diagnosis, you have to be careful uh, to all the other listeners out there. Like when you go to school to be a therapist and you're learning about all the different things people struggle with, you can start to think you have every single diagnosis because you read through the list like I just did and you're like, that's me. I don't like social situations. Maybe I have this. So, so be careful, take it easy. And remember, it's about how it impairs your life. Okay, so all of us have some of these traits, but you have to look at how these traits are impairing your life. Okay, 
Uh, it's worth noting a couple of things here. First, it's that all these diagnoses have similar presentations, and most importantly, they all seem to be treated effectively with cognitive behavioral talk therapy. None of these are conditions that make you any less of a good person than anyone else, and none of these conditions are hopeless lost causes. You can recover, you can feel better, and you can learn to cope with these symptoms. So we'll be praying for you, Anonymous. Jenna wraps us up. A family member has drifted away from the faith. Confession, like many other one-on-one interactions, gave them acute anxiety. So like any other trigger, they cut it off to avoid stress. Gradually, they stopped going to mass altogether. What advice do you have for evangelizing someone in this situation? And how can they overcome their anxiety in regards to practicing the faith and receiving the sacraments? Let's all say a quick prayer for Jenna's family member, for Jenna, and for everyone kept away from the sacraments because of anxiety and for all of us who love them. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. I think a great place to start is offering to pray for them. This is a low anxiety level intervention. Offer to pray for them away from them at home, you know, not like laying hands on them right there. (laughs) Offer to pray that God will make a path for them to receive his grace in whatever manner he wants it to happen. This will hopefully bring them back to praying as well. And if they start praying again in the peace and quiet of their own home, who knows where Jesus or the Blessed Mother may lead them praying for them and asking God to help them find the strength to pray as well is an incredibly underrated path for the faith to start flowing again. Prayer is powerful, and while we accept that intellectually, we seem to not fully embrace its power in our hearts, and that leads to a lot of opportunities for prayer to be missed, in my opinion. It might also be helpful to slowly recommend other practices they can engage in to help reconnect them to their faith. If there's an adoration chapel nearby, there's usually barely anyone there. It can be a quiet place to just sit with God without all the other potentially anxiety-provoking trappings, and God will do great things just by way of us sitting in a chapel with him. No words, no actions, nothing but sitting in his presence is necessary. If all of that starts to move them in the right direction, I would offer to go to mass with them. Sit in the back or wherever they want to sit to help reduce their anxiety. Stay with them in the pew during communion if they don't feel like going up. Whatever it takes to help them feel comfortable. Whatever it takes to remind them that they only need to engage as much as they can at any given moment. We'll be praying for you and your family member and trusting in Christ to do amazing and healing things. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.